I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 13th, 2014. Coming up, Boulder biotech entrepreneur Larry Gold will talk about his upcoming annual Gold Lab Symposium, which he says is for scientists and citizens. And we'll look under the hood at a new U.S. climate report and its implications for all of us. It's happening now, and it's happening right here. Information in this report is giving us enough warning that hopefully we can do something about it. But first, let's take a look at what's on the calendar this week on the science front. On the science calendar this week, if you're curious about the power of thought in influencing our health, here's one for you. Tonight, Boulder Cafe Scientifique will host a talk by CU professor Tor Wager on the emerging neuroscience of belief and its effects on brain and body. His talk is titled, Thoughts as Things, Placebo Effects on the Brain Systems that Regulate Pain and Emotion. Dr. Wager... We'll explore, for instance, how simply believing in a treatment can reduce pain or even change our physiology. The talk starts at 6 o'clock, but come early for refreshments at 5.30 if you like. The event will be held at the Outlook Boulder Hotel on 28th Street near Baseline. It's a big week in science, including for kids and teenagers. Two Colorado students are in Los Angeles competing as finalists in the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. It's a program of Society for Science and the Public, which publishes, publishes science news and science news for students, and it's the world's largest high school science research competition. On a future show, after the competition, we'll hear from Colorado contestants Hope Weinstein, a senior at Fairview High who's working on water filtration technology using nanoparticles, and Michael Brady, a senior at Cherry Creek High who's making fuel cells from soil bacteria. To follow the fair, search for Intel ISEF 2014. That's ISEF for International Science and Engineering. Dinosaur and fossil lovers out there, on this day, 132 years ago, in 1832, French naturalist and zoologist Jean-Leopold Nicolas Frédéric Cuvier, a mouthful, known as George Cuvier, passed away. Cuvier was a major figure in natural sciences research in the early 19th century. He was instrumental in establishing the fields of comparative anatomy and paleontology through his work in comparing living animals with fossils. Cuvier also is well known for establishing extinction as a fact. Now that we're entering what many scientists call the sixth extinction, it may sound axiomatic, but at the time, extinction was considered by many of Cuvier's contemporaries to be merely controversial speculation. And fast forward 48 years, on this day in 1880, inventor Thomas Edison performed the first test of his electric railway in Menlo Park, New Jersey. <laughs> You're tuned to the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Ted Burnham. This Friday and Saturday, you can attend the free annual CU Boulder Gold Lab Symposium. This year's theme is Embracing the Reptile Within, Head, Heart, and Healthcare. How on Earth's Shelley Schlender has more from the symposium's founder, Boulder scientist and entrepreneur, Larry Gold. Larry Gold, 
what's going to happen at the Gold Lab Symposium this year? Huh. Well, it's number five, Friday and Saturday, May 16th and 17th. We have more people signed up than ever to come. It's free. My goal, this is a lifelong desire to integrate my head and my heart and make value for healthcare. Let's look at what you have here, people talking technology and people saying things like, what the heck do we think intelligence is? How much does it matter whether you believe in the medicine you're getting or not? You have people who are experts talking about those topics. Yep. Ted Kapchuk published a remarkable paper about inflammatory bowel disease. They did a real clinical trial, and in this real clinical trial, people who had inflammatory bowel disease, in one case, they just talked to them, and in the other case, they talked to them and then said, and now I'd like to give you a pill. There's nothing in it. I'm going to give you a placebo. It will not have any impact on your disease because it's a placebo. It has a little sugar. It's nothing. And those people did better. Unbelievable. A placebo effect where you know it's a placebo, you could still respond better. It, it's a remarkable finding. you got to have a guy like that around. You also have someone here talking about autism. Joy Hirsch is a remarkable neurobiologist from Yale, and she's going to talk about functional MRI, which is a very important new weapon. That's magnetic resonance imaging, but what is functional magnetic resonance imaging? If you're looking at the brain and you're visualizing activity in the brain, which you can do. Oh, meaning instead of just having someone hold still and take a snapshot, take a movie as you ask them to do things with their thoughts. Yes, that is what it is, and she's an expert in that. And the talk after her talk by Lisa Stubbs is in some ways the most remarkable talk of the entire symposium. This is at 2.40 p.m. on Friday the 16th. She looked at three creatures, a mouse, a bee, and a fish, three things that we think don't have too much to do with each other, we think. She found that if you could figure out a way to provoke them similarly into a fear response, these three creatures actually did the same things in their brain as each other. A kind of remarkable thing about some of our brain functions are pretty hardwired, and she's uncovered some of them. A former dean is going to come and talk about uh, how patients get choices and how you democratize medical services. A big question. Is this to deal with the questions of how the heck are we going to measure and evaluate health and disease in the new ways that are on the horizon. The era of measuring more stuff is upon us, and that's a big change. A physician used to measure 20 things, and then we'd measure 100 things. Now you can measure tens of thousands of things, and so you have a big data issue. You have to separate the noise from the things that are driving. Is there a lot of noise right now? Yes. Is it mostly noise? Yes. So but we, that's okay. That's okay. Sure. Noise is the background, and our job as scientists, everybody's job, is to figure out what matters. The premise of the symposia has been and will continue to be, how can we look at the technologies that keep changing, and they do change every year, and so we have a beautiful collection of people talking about those things. And every year I try to reach toward actionable policies and politics and that sort of thing. And this is a tough mix to try to achieve. 
Yes. So what I did this year, I didn't divide it science first, then thinking. I didn't do it that way. They're thought people throughout. I have two friends that have become really close friends that I adore. Robert Duke, the music teacher, in his talk a couple years ago, showed the cello playing kid, and we all cried. Wonderful educator with Scott Danielson. And he gave the talk in the first symposium about how one uses advertising skills, which he'd done, he was a filmmaker also, how one uses those skills to educate women in Africa to demand that the men they are sleeping with use condoms. They called me a few months ago, and they literally said, we would like to hijack the meeting. Would you allow us to do that? And I said, yes. They're going to do a few little 10-minute things throughout both days to get the audience thinking, etude one through five at different times in the program, and then they're going to have some courage to do a thing that is, uh, well, we'll see. Well, and so you have this very scientific and educational forum that you have that's free that will be happening at Munziger Auditorium at CU Boulder this weekend. There are citizens that are always in the audience, and also there are some of the leading scientists at CU who slip in and listen for a while before they go back to their classes or their research. The best thing that happens is when the busy scientists who are waiting to go upstairs and pipette yet another experiment. The best moments are when they realize that they are learning in a way that's a bit orthogonal to listening to only science. Scientists... Uh, what, what does orthogonal mean? Yeah, my wife, every time I use the word orthogonal, she wants to punch me. So off-center, orthogonal is kind of coming at it from another direction. That's, you know, that's the way I use it. I've never looked it up. The best moments are when the scientists who are working so hard, I mean, I, you, know, I, you know this, we've talked about it. I work unbelievably hard as a scientist. I did my whole life. And I've learned only in the last years how important it is for my science to learn about these other kinds of things. And that's human and good. And if we can help the non-scientists understand that science is largely obscure because of language, which we try to fix, and to have the scientists understand that the humanities matter, it, in the end, the reason that we get money from the government through the NIH and through venture money and blah, blah, blah to do the work is to help people. So these two groups ought to be talking to each other. And so can I just say one thing? If you listen to this show and you try to sign up and you get a note back from the sign-up that it's full, the room only holds 400 and some odd people, send an email to my daughter, Carissa. Her email address is cgold at somalogic.com. Reach out to Carissa, and we'll figure out a way to get you Thanks to Shelley Slender for that report. To find out more about the Gold Lab Symposium, go to goldlabcolorado.com or check out our website, howonearthradio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. It's getting harder and harder to argue that climate change is a distant threat, say to polar bears in the Arctic or penguins in Antarctica. A sobering new report on the change 
of climate change in the United States makes it starkly clear that human-induced climate change is already affecting all parts of the country and now. For starters, climate change is making water more scarce in some regions while bringing torrential rains elsewhere. It's making heat waves more common and intense, and it's causing more severe and destructive wildfires. The study, known as the National Climate Assessment, comes on the heels of a major global climate change report that we discussed on the show a couple weeks ago. That one was from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So with us in the studio to discuss the U.S. study and its implications, we have two guests. Dr. Kristen Averitt is a lead author of a chapter on energy, water, and land in the National Climate Report. She's an associate director for science at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, at CU Boulder. And Dan Glick is a journalist who's covered climate change for many years. He helped edit the report, and his he and his company, The Story Group, created a series of really powerful short videos that support the report and show the immediate impacts on climate change. So Dan and Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Kristen, um, you're a scientist here. I want to start with you. Um, just a couple key messages. I know there's been sort of a series of different climate change reports. What, what about this one? stands out for you? I think what's really important about it is it's the most comprehensive and in-depth assessment or evaluation of the status of our climate here, specifically in the United States. There have been two previous national climate assessments. This one, it's bigger and better, and it (laughs) really tells us a lot more and is more comprehensive about everything that really is happening and is projected to happen across the states. And more comprehensive in terms of the science being just more detailed, more regionally specific? Yes. uh, There are actually some new aspects to this report that were not in the past one. Uh, For example, the chapter that I contributed to and was a lead author on, instead of just looking at energy, water, land use in, in a vacuum, it really takes a more comprehensive look at the reality of the way that we work and the way that the world operates. It looks at the intersections among these sectors and how that creates additional tension in the climate system. Yeah, so many in the West certainly have some sense of, well, there's heat waves and there's drought and there's wildfire and they're all connected somehow. But give an example of how specifically this is showing not just these are connected, but how how the interactive forces are working. Well, one way that I would like to characterize kind of the intersection among energy, water, and land, it's very policy relevant in that as we look to mitigate the emissions of greenhouse gases, that's really going to affect our energy portfolios, how we generate electricity across the United States. Natural gas as a bridging fuel, for example, that has very real implications for our air quality, our water quality, and our land use, specifically in Colorado. So national policy decisions can have implications on a very local scale. So these are the types of issues that we delve into in this particular chapter in the assessment. And Dan, um, I alluded to your videos before. I know you've got several of these really powerful videos showing different scenarios and the impacts now. Maybe talk about one or two of them. Sure. I, I think one of the key points of the report is that climate change isn't happening in 2100. It's happening now, and it's affecting the lives and livelihoods of Americans all over the country. And different regions are being affected by different forces. And one of the things that uh, Kristen was saying about energy and water, for example, is that it takes water to create energy, Mm -hmm. whether it's hydropower or whether it's natural gas or whether it's coal-fired power plants. And so when um, climate change affects the water availability in one place, 
it's going to affect the way we create energy as well. Mm -hmm. And you gave an example, I mean, just to show how um, the oceans are changing, not just in terms of temperature, but um, acidification, a really powerful example of, of how that's playing out now. Because a lot of people are like, yeah, coral reefs, that's really sad, but it's not hitting me now. Well, one of the findings of the report is that oceans have become 30% more acidic since pre-industrial times. And the oceans absorb about 25% of the carbon dioxide that we emit that's by burning. That's huge. Relative that's, to huge. tropical forests are about that. Right. More, but, but it's huge. So the, the pH of the oceans are going down, which makes the waters more corrosive. And we did a, a video about these um, young fifth-generation oyster farmers in Washington State and how the oceans are so acidic that it's actually dissolving the shells of their baby oysters, and they're having to consider different ways of raising their oysters um, to account for the fact that this water is actually killing their baby oysters before they can start really growing. So it's killing many and some are just not growing to mature state. Right. Well, it's dissolving their shells, which is obviously a really important thing for if you're an oyster. Right. <laughs> like, uh, you kind of need a backbone to grow. Yeah. And um, Kristen, back to you, since you had the land, water, energy chapter, and you just said some of the things that are different about the reports before, that you're showing more the interactions between different things and the confounding factors. What, what else really stands out? Because you also were involved in previous IPCC reports and such, so you've got, despite your young age, you've got quite a history <laughs> here with these reports. So what, what really stands out otherwise? I think, uh, you know, it's, it's beyond penguins and polar, polar bears at this point. It really is. It's what's happening here, and it's... You know, there are things in this report and there's science that's emerging that there are things happening I didn't expect to see happen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really quite concerning. I would also say that the emphasis on the really the policy relevant science is really important in this. You know, we were very deliberate in trying to pull out what is the science that's going to best support decision making at different scales, mm -hmm. at the national scale, at the regional scale, and also at state and local scales. We wanted to make sure that we're providing information that can be used to for the best so that we could plan really and prepare for the impacts that really might be down the pike. And just to clarify, so this is not a study of new original research, right? Talk a little bit about the science or the, right. the review process. Right. So the assessment process, it's very detailed. There are multiple layers of review around these sort of uh, these sort of documents. In the National Climate Assessment specifically, for our chapter alone, we had about six authors. We are representing essentially hundreds and hundreds of other scientists in trying to develop what is the consensus in our field around what is happening and the climate science. Mm -hmm. We had hundreds of documents to consider, to pull in, and really distill down to five pages of key messages. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but it <laughs> sounds <not> painful. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, you know, one thing that's really important about this report is that it's not policy prescriptive. It is a scientific report, but it's also very, very clear um, for the projections that we look at two main scenarios for emission pathways. And if we keep going down the path we're headed, we're looking at a, a globe that's going to be much, much warmer. And that we're at a kind of a crossroads here where we need 
what some people would call a fundamental transformation of our energy economy in order to avoid the worst effects. And that we are, and this, this report actually looks at many things they call co-benefits or times where you could make uh, a choice about energy that will also help human health, for example. And so these are the kinds of things that the report does point to, although it doesn't tell you how to get there. Aha, uh -huh. that would be crossing the political line, right? Exactly. And speaking of the political line, I mean, unfortunately, it seems that Washington is as gridlocked now as ever. Some of the Republicans aren't even, who, who years ago supported, report supported cap and train. John McCain, for one, aren't speaking about it or, or, or attacking it. Um, do you see some hope in Washington? You know, one of the things that I think is another unique part of this report is that it tells success stories. It mm -hmm. talks about what people are doing now to prepare and also what people have been doing. So it shows that the science is actionable and people are taking action, regardless of which side of the aisle they might sit on. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Denver Water, they actually have a climate scientist on staff, and she was instrumental in the report. She was a co-author. Uh, you know, there are people, there are companies, there are there are corporations that are taking action now. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and this isn't what we don't have is national comprehensive legislation, but that's actually not going to happen and, and in any time soon. And and what what Kristen said is really important. There are there are case studies of adaptation measures or mitigation me measures that states and localities are putting into place, and they're not commensurate with the threat. I, I think the report makes it mm -hmm. very, very clear. But there are things happening, and there are pathways forward. One final question. So, all right, it's going to get hotter. We're going to have more wildfires. That's a bad thing for sure. But some people say, okay, so Colorado, for instance, to bring it home to us, becomes a little more like Arizona in a few decades. I don't want to live there myself, but is that such a bad thing? And again, it addresses this adaptation. So animals adapt, some of them more than others. People adapt, some more than others. I think one of the challenges we have specific to Colorado is it's not just about changes in our natural resources and the impacts of climate change. We also have a burgeoning population. There are going to be de more demands and more pressure on our natural resources. We need to consider the entire scope of pressures. It's not just climate change, but I'll tell you, climate change affects everything that's important to us. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you just look look at what happened here last spring. I mean, this... Uh this is a place that can get drier and still have floods at the same time, and both of them have a climate footprint. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. That was Dr. Kristen Averett, co-author of the recent National Climate Assessment, and Dan Glick, journalist who helped edit the report and produce videos related to the report's key messages. Thanks so much to you both for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. And you can find out more about the report by going to globalchange.gov. And we'll also link to both the videos and the report on howonearthradio.org later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by myself, Ted Burnham. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Cinema Phonic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Burnham.